open our Bibles this morning, the book of Luke. We're going to go to chapter 16. As you're turning there, we're going to speak uh, on the subject of hell. To be specific, we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on hell. Now, many people today question the reality of a literal hell. Only half, to be specific, 58% in a recent poll of Americans believe in the reality of a literal hell. That number is steadily decreasing. Now, when they take a poll like that, they're talking with atheists who none of them believe it, and they're talking with uh, evangelical Christians. So really, uh, 58% is uh, an interesting number. But that number has been steadily declining. In fact, uh, as little as seven, uh, 20 years ago, 72% believed in a literal hell. That's quite a change, really, in the mindset of humanity, American humanity, over the last 20 years. Throughout my 40 years of ministry, I have heard many, many statements that people have said about hell. Some have said, uh, hell is right here on earth, pastor. Others have said, you know, we make our own heaven, and we make our own hell by the lives that we live. And of course, the favorite answer that most people say is, how could a God of love, how could a beautiful God actually have a place where people burn forever? I was interested this week, uh, you may have seen the headlines or the uh, article, Aaron Rodgers uh, is a well-known quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He is a very good sportsman for sure. Uh, he led them to the 2010 uh, Super Bowl and uh, they victory. He's a, a great quarterback. Um, but uh, as, as much as he knows football, he seems to be a little lacking in his Bible knowledge because uh, he came out with this statement this week. And it's sad really and surprising even because he grew up in a good Christian home not far from here in Chico. And I quote, I do not know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent, you can tell he's been in church, being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? That's pretty much the sentiment that we hear so often. Now, such a statement is actually mystifying to me, and I tell you why, because I actually believe the exact opposite. <laughs> Honestly, I can't see why a holy God doesn't just evaporate us. When you realize just how we are, the things that we do, we take His air, we take His food, we take all of His blessings, and for the most part, don't even tip our hat to who He is. We lie from the day we're born. We resist every rule. We get so angry we could kill people. Road rage, people would mow people over. I mean, little children. It's crazy. Our political leaders are often corrupt. Our schools are anti-God. Our a medical system takes full-term healthy children and murders them on the table outside of the womb. I mean, and the lawmakers protect them. Folks, we have a greedy, corrupt situation. Folks, honestly, I, 
I think the exact opposite. I can't imagine why God even lets us around. But the truth is, our God is incredibly long-suffering. He is loving and kind. And Scripture says over and over again, He is slow to anger. And I will tell you, He is slow to anger. For 6,000 years, He has put up with the shenanigans of humankind and through it all even provided a means where we could escape hell. Now, the topic of hell, admittedly, is difficult to wrap our heads around sometimes, because mostly because we have loved ones or friends that really for all it would appear that they're on their way to a hell, and I don't want to think about that. I don't want to uh, deal with that even. And not only is it hard to hear, but it's even hard to preach, I must admit. It's not, uh, you know, not an easy subject. Yeah, we all read books about heaven, there's series on heaven, but I've never uh, heard of a pastor preaching a sermon series on hell. It just doesn't happen because it's a difficult subject for humans to hear. And yet actually, it's a profitable subject. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, you can jot this down. It's an interesting verse. It says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Meaning, it's better to really go to a funeral, in a sense, than it is to go to a wedding. Because at a funeral, it says people apply their hearts to wisdom. They begin to think about their end and to think about their, who they are. Now, the fact of hell is a real biblical topic. Many people will say that, oh, hell, the concept of it came out of the dark ages. The church put that out there, floated that doctrine out there to scare people and make them fearful so that they would, you know, could uh, take them over and uh, take their money or whatever, keep them under, the, under their thumbs. But the fact is, every New Testament uh, writer talks about hell in one way or another. And the one we get the most about Hell is from Jesus Christ Himself. And why does Jesus do that? Because He loves us and because He doesn't want us to go there. And folks, here's the good news. Nobody has to go to hell. Amen. That's good news here this morning. Nobody has to go to hell. It is said that former Vice President of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, was presiding over the Senate when one senator angrily told another, go straight to hell. The offended senator complained to the vice president, you're the presiding officer. You, you shouldn't allow him to say things like that. And Vice President Coolidge looked up from his book he'd been leafing through while listening to the uh, acrimonious debate. And he said, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. You don't have to go to hell. And uh, the fact is, folks, uh, we don't have to go. And uh, as we're going to see here very clearly, because uh, last week we laid the foundation, but the fact is this study today is going to clearly lay the blame at everybody's doorstep. If we go to hell, it's because something we chose to do, and we've had every opportunity not to. And so let's, uh, let's look at this teaching here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message.
Lord, I can tell you my heart has been stirred, even encouraged. While, Lord, my heart grieves for those who uh, go to a Christless eternity, Lord, my heart burns with the responsibility and, Lord, the joy of being able to share with others the gospel. Thank you. Thank you for that privilege. And, Lord, teach us today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first part of Luke 16, starting in verse 19, he kind of gives us the story. We have a rich man. He doesn't have a name, and he's not in the story. He's not going to hell because he's rich. It's just that's uh, who he is. He's a very well-to-do person, very wealthy person. And Christ, in the, his wonderful way, he tells stories. He doesn't just say, there was a rich man. He says he was, he was clothed in the most beautiful garments you can imagine. And then he tells us about the other fellow in the story. Lazarus gives his name. His name means helped by God. It's the Greek form of the word Eliezer. And he, though he was, uh, had a really rough physical condition, he was spiritually helped by God. And then from that summary, he goes to the transition and says... But while that was the situation on earth, there's an afterlife, and things began to transition. And so now we pick up the third part of our outline, if you want to pick that up, and that is a destination. In verses 24 through 26, let's read these verses together, if you would, please. Ready? Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Begin. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Here we find that hell is a place. It's not a consciousness. It's not a, a feeling. It's not a, just a, a thought. It is a literal location. Some have wondered if hell is in the center of the earth. Actually, Scripture doesn't definitively say, although the center of the earth certainly matches the description of hell. It's uh, down, it's fire, it's a lake of fire, it is um, uh, dark, and uh, it, uh, it doesn't ever quench. And so some have thought that hell is actually at the center of the earth. Whether it is or not, we're not exactly told. All that we know is it is a real place. Notice what it says here that the rich man uh, cries out and says, Father Abraham. Now remember, he is in a place where he can actually see Abraham. By the way, that's good news that he could recognize it was Abraham. Isn't it good to know that when our loved ones die in Christ, we know them in heaven? This is Abraham. He could see and know that it was Abraham. And uh, that's a blessed thing to know that we'll see our loved ones and we'll be able to say, hey, that's Abraham. 
And we're going to go there and we're going to get to see Abraham. But notice what it says. It says he cried out, Father Abraham. Now, actually, the word cried out means he screamed. He screamed, Father Abraham. Now, why did he call him Father? He wasn't his father, but in his mind, the rich man who was now in hell had the concept that because he was related by uh, people group or by race, you might say, because he was related to this man religiously, culturally, I'm a Jew. (laughs) Father Abraham, you're my father. You're the progenitor of all the Israelites. You are Mr. Israel. You are who we are. Father Abraham, surely this ought to mean something to you. And so he cries out. In fact, it's interesting how that three different times in those three verses from um, we've been looking at, three different times he calls him Father Abraham. He really wanted Abraham to know that he was connected to him from a cultural standpoint. I also want you to notice that this man in hell didn't say, hey, what am I doing here? I mean, this seems like a little bit of overkill here. Throughout the entire story, the rich man never said, I don't deserve to be here because he realized. It's, it's interesting to me as we'll read through in a little bit. I've been thinking about it all week, how that theologically, this rich man got a whole new concept. Now, morally, he didn't, as we'll see in a bit. He, uh, he still was just as rotten as he ever was on earth, although from the story, we don't get a sense that he was rotten. In fact, if anything, the only thing we know about this guy that had any uh, mark against him was that basically he was self-consumed and insensitive. I mean, he was sitting there eating all this good stuff, and this man out here didn't have anything, and he'd just throw him a few crumbs. I mean, uh, you know, that's not the best, but I mean, it's not murder or something. It's not like it's some, you know, some great wicked sin. It's just being selfish. So, I mean, really, we don't get a sense that this rich man was such a bad guy from the story, and yet we see his sense in hell to be just that. But notice what he says. He says, he's, he doesn't in one place say, you know, God, I don't think I deserve to be here. He gets a real sense of a clarity about what hell is. And I, and I think that suggests another thing about hell. We understand that hell is not remedial. You know, it's not a, a prison that you send people to. Uh, it's interesting you know, uh, it, I never realized it, but over the years, what they call prisons has changed, and now they call them correctional institutions. The thought is that we're going to correct them. They're going to come out, hopefully live a good life, and uh, be a different person, a better person. They're going to correct them. But you see, hell is not a correctional institution. It is a forever thing. It is the just result of a righteous holy God, who we sang a moment ago, is a consuming fire. He is so holy, He's a consuming fire. And the fact is, nobody gets a ticket out of hell. There's no escape card. There's no purging. There's no cleansing. There, it is a a punitive place. It It is a forever place. Notice what it says here. Now, notice the strange request that this rich man has. He says, send Lazarus. And now we're getting a sense of the mindset of this guy. Now, I remind you, he's not in hell because he's rich. And some might take the idea that this is, you know, a story about, 
you know, corrupt rich people. No, I mean, uh, many of God's most wonderful, most uh, amazing God's people have been very wealthy, both in the Bible and even today. Uh, people that have money is not a, doesn't mean they're bad people. Just that's who this man was. But notice his mindset. He said, send Lazarus. Now, nobody else should leave heaven because I'm sure they deserve to be there. But Lazarus, uh, not so much maybe. I mean, look at how he was on earth. He was a bum, basically. He was not a, he must have had problems in his life or he wouldn't have, uh, moral problems or he wouldn't have had so many issues. I mean, here he is. So if anybody should leave heaven and come to hell, it would be Lazarus. Send Lazarus here. And he probably deserves to be here anyway. And while he's coming, tell him to bring some water. I'd even take a drop of water because I am suffering, suffering. Now, we see the arrogance of this man. We see the absolute uh, selfishness that his first consideration is, I'm a Jew. Why am I in hell? Then it's, if anybody should be in hell, it should be Lazarus. And then it's, I need comfort. Oh, I just need someone to come and comfort me. Folks, we realize that hell doesn't make anybody better, sadly. There's no humility in hell. Notice some characteristics of hell, not only in this story, but in other places. And let me just give you a few from the Bible so that we're clear on this. The first uh, characteristic, physical characteristic of hell is that it is a place of torment. Torment. Now, I've, I've been in some very uncomfortable situations, both physically and other areas. I mean, I just thought, man, if I could get out of here, I would be so happy. I know right now this coronavirus is really capturing everybody's attention, and I can only imagine what it must be like being on one of those, uh, one of those cruise ships, and you can't leave. I mean, I mean, imagine what it'd be like to be locked in that place, you just, and knowing that maybe you're just going to keep getting this sickness coming your way. Well, that's torment. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, you may recall that Jesus was casting the demon out of a couple of men who were very possessed, and the demons spoke out to Christ. And they said, are you coming hither to torment us before the time? Yes, hell is a place of torment. Not only is it a place of torment, it is a fiery place. It really is a fiery place. And I know that just seems very trite to people. It just seems so like, oh, you know, how could that be? But Jesus himself. Now, by the way, if we believe what Jesus said about salvation, if we believe what he said about humility, if we believe all those wonderful things in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, why wouldn't we believe what he says about hell? To not believe what Jesus is about hell is to just deny Christ. It is antichrist. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 and verse 43, if your hand offends you, and he's speaking about how serious it is to uh, be an, you know, a, a moral person, he said, cut it off. I mean, if that hand of yours is causing you uh, these moral issues. He said, it'd honestly be better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go to hell because it's a fire that is never quenched. It's a fire and there is no pain any more painful than the pain of being burnt, I will tell you. It is not only a fiery place and not only it is it a torment place, but it is a place of darkness. Jesus was 
talking in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, the kingdom of this, the children of this kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Well, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, outer darkness. Basically, he said, hell is like being lost in space. You're just perhaps tumbling. It's called a bottomless pit. It's called outer darkness. And so, it is this sensation of always being out there utterly alone. Mental health professionals call this sense of abandonment uniquely cosmic loneliness, and such it is, because it is, uh, this particular one is uh, isolation from God. And notice what it says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, so it's a spiritual, emotional, mental pain, gnashing of teeth. The idea is that the pain is so great that it just, you just grit your teeth trying to bear it. And I really, my heart goes out to some people in so much pain, and we have dear people in our church and there's so much pain, and uh, they, they want to try to make it, but it's just so hard on them, and the gnashing of teeth. And that's what it says here, that hell is like, it is, a, it is an emotional weeping, but it is also a gnashing of teeth. But it's interesting how that is called outer darkness. Some people have uh, thought that that must be a, that shows a discrepancy in the Bible. In one place, God calls it fire, which is light. And in another place, he calls it darkness. How can it be both fire, which is light, and darkness? Well, you know, even science uh, can help us a little on that. They say that the hottest fire actually is fire that cannot be seen. In fact, they say that black holes are actually mass, stellar mass, that are billions and billions of Kelvins hot, and the black flame is actually the hottest of all flames. And so, it's outer darkness because it is fire. And then it is a place of restlessness, a place of restlessness. The old prophet Isaiah the mighty man of God of the Old Testament. So there are two kinds of people in the world, those who have peace and those who don't have peace. And Isaiah 57 and verse 20, he said, the wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest. There's no peace, my, saith my God, to the wicked. And it says, uh, he, Jesus clarified that a little bit in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 9 and verse 48, they're cast into hellfire where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched. Of all the horrific descriptions of hell, that has to be just about to make your skin crawl the most. He said, hell is like a place where worms or maggots crawling all over you all the time, just eating away, eating away at your flesh. Most Bible scholars get the idea that this actually is referring to our conscience, the gnawing of a, the constant gnawing that I could have been saved. I, I could have accepted Christ. I, I, not only for myself, and as we'll see here, this man is concerned about his family. And for all of eternity, that gnawing conscience, he was a bad example to his brothers. He was a terrible example to others. Father Abraham, it doesn't work. His relationship to Abraham, the fact that he was Jewish, didn't help him go to heaven. The fact that he was rich, he couldn't buy his way into heaven. The fact that he had a name that was 
better than any other name, didn't get him into heaven, the fact that he had influence. And then notice what God says through Abraham, son, remember. Son, remember. And that even leads to the thought of this uh, conscience, remember. Remember. And that's what hell's going to be like. Son, I treated you like a son. I gave you every opportunity. I didn't treat you like an outcast. You have been loved like a son. Remember that. Remember all those times that someone came by your door. Remember all those times that you turned on the radio and you heard a Christian song. Remember all those times you were sitting in your front room and you, Billy Graham came on. Or remember all those times you went to church or one of those dramas. Or remember all those times when you drove by and you saw this advertisement about God. Remember, son, you've been given every opportunity. Son, remember. And that is perhaps one of the worst things about the descriptions of hell. It is a place of conscience forever. And then notice verse 26. It gets even worse. And beside all this, or we could say it, and furthermore, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. There is a gulf between heaven and hell. Nobody has ever passed from hell to heaven. Now, there's a popular church doctrine out there that says that a person can go to this waiting place and they can be purged, cleansed, corrected, and they can transfer to heaven. And it really helps if your loved ones on earth pray for them. That's why sometimes you'll hear some, uh, some religious person say, pray for their soul. I'll pray for their soul. My friend, it does no good to pray for the soul of a person who's gone to heaven or to hell, or excuse me, to hell. It means their soul is already, it's already a decision. It's been done. And here it says there is a great gulf. There's a chasm between the two. I know the pastor at First Baptist uh, in Dallas, uh, Pastor Jeffries recently got into trouble, big trouble with the uh, media, liberal media, because he said that even heaven has walls. They were talking about, you know, the, the immigration problem. And the fact is, Heaven does have walls, and there's a great gulf between heaven and hell. Uh, there's, a, there's a moat, as it were. There's, I mean, there's a big separation. And the fact is, there's nobody that ever has gone between the two. And so there's a summation. He gives us the story. Then there's a transition from earth to the afterlife. And my friend, the afterlife does come. It, it is a transition. And then we find that hell is a destination. And then finally, this morning... Now we see the most amazing conversation ever in verses 27 through 31. By the way, this is one of the reasons why this story is so important. Because in the teaching about hell, this is the only story that's a case study. It's an actual study of a person who actually went to hell, and we have what happened. Everything else are doctrine and thoughts, but this we have an actual case study. Jesus told these, reason, these stories for a reason. Why did Jesus tell us all this? Because he knows how we think, We're, us humans. Verse 27, then he said, I pray thee. Notice all the religious terms that this rich man in hell is saying. I pray. In hell, he's praying. 
What's he praying for? You know, people have the idea that in hell it's not religious, but uh, fact is people get real religious there. I pray thee therefore, Father, here we go again, he's claiming his Jewish heritage, send him, send him to my father's house. If, if Lazarus can't come to me, then at least make him come alive. Let him walk down the street and talk to the people in my community, especially in my house. Verse 28, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He himself says it's torment. Verse 29, Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. They have scripture. They have the Bible. Your Jewish brothers have the Bible. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the Psalms. They have all the Bible. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, that won't work. The Bible's not good enough. The Bible's not good enough. If one went from the dead, if they were raised from the dead, and, and they would repent. Now, isn't it interesting that now he knows what it takes to go to heaven? Repentance. All of a sudden, now on earth, he might have said, uh, you know, I, uh, you say you're good, you say you're bad. He says he's good, he's bad. You know, I don't know. Hey, you know, I, I, I'm confused. You know, on earth, yeah, oh, yeah, you know. But in hell, perfect theological clarity. Perfect. They have to repent. They must repent. I know they have to repent. Interesting how all of a sudden the theology clears up in hell. No excuses. You can say all you want to on earth, but not in hell. Oh, they have to repent. Verse 31, notice the somber words, the chilling words of Jesus. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they will not listen to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And here we find the bottom line of why people go to heaven and why some go to hell. Because some trust Scripture and some don't. Bottom line, the scriptural truth of the gospel. The gospel is not something that um, rabbi whoever says or guru whoever says or pastor whoever says. That's not the gospel. The gospel is recorded in Scripture. It's what God said in His love letter to mankind. It is the written Word of God. And notice He clarifies that it is what is written. Now, I know these people want to sign, you know, and I, I talk to people all the time. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If I could just really know. We talked, I remember this past summer, Pastor Mike and I talked with a man who said, you know what, I'd love to, I'd really like to believe this, but I'm just a real scientific kind of person, and I, you know, I just, I'm just going to need proof. And uh, I remember Pastor Mike wisely said, you're not going to get any. What? No, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get any proof. Well, I deserve proof. I, I'm a thinking human. I, I deserve proof. I'm not going to get any. Because everything you need to go to heaven, you've already been given. You have been given the written word. And if you won't accept the written word, then you won't accept 
a miracle. And Jesus even very clearly pointed out, if they won't accept the written words of Moses, they didn't believe Moses back then. I mean, Moses would come and God would do miracles through his hands. I mean, give them manna and the sea parted and miracle after miracle. And a few days would go by and they're like, what you done for me lately, Moses? What you done for me lately, God? I mean, if they don't get a miracle every day, then I'm going somewhere else. God said, you need to realize that it is the Bible that touches people's hearts. And let me just, uh, let me just do a footnote here. I want to say thank you to this church because you love the Word of God. You have invested your time, your prayer, your support to build a place and to build this new place because you want a comfortable place, a beautiful place, a secure place, a safe place where the Word of God can be preached. And I will tell you that that is the goal and that is the that is our vision here, to be a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching church. Why? Because Scripture says, Romans 10, 14, how shall they believe if they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The only way people get saved is they hear the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 is a great explanation of how people get saved. They have to hear the specific revelation of God as revealed in Scripture. Two friends were talking, one a Christian, the other not. Hey, Bob, you know where sinners go? I know what you're going to say. You're going to tell me they go to hell. No, friend. Sinners go to church. Amen. He was taken back. All of a sudden he realized he was expecting him to say, sinners go to hell. He said, no, sinners go to church. They hear the gospel and they become the saints of God. And folks, that's what a church is all about. It's not for holy people. And that's what some folks think that you think you're holy because you say you're going to heaven. Look, I, whenever I talk to a real believer, none of them feel like they're holy because they're so good. They all feel like, thank God for His mercy. <laughs> if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of God, I would be on my way to a fiery hell. I just happen to believe the Scripture. Folks, we must believe Scripture. In America, many people uh, term those who believe the Bible as evangelicals. Have you heard that term, evangelicals? It's a phrase that's been coined by really the media. I don't know that churches actually call themselves that. But actually, it's, a, it's actually a good word. You know, not like baptism or Baptist. You know, people call that church a Baptist church. It was actually a, a phrase that was derogatory. So those people are always baptizing people, you know. And Baptists didn't name themselves. They were named by the Roman Catholic Church. But evangelical actually is a good word because it comes from the Greek word evangelize, which means to proclaim the good news. So really when a person says that, oh, those are evangelical Christians, meaning 
they're Bible-believing, they're on the right side of, you know, the community and thinking. Some thinking is derogatory, but the fact is we own it. <laughs> we own that word, amen. Evangelical, yep, that's exactly what God has called us to do, is to proclaim the good news. Why? Because that's the only way that people get saved, as we see here. He says here, let them hear the Scripture, or actually heed is the actual word there. Let them heed Scripture. Now, friends, I was going through this this week. My heart was just so blessed, burdened at the same time. I was just so many emotions. I was thinking, how important it is for me then to give somebody the Word because it's their responsibility to heed it. If I don't give it to them, how can they believe on whom they've not heard? How can they believe in whom they've not heard? How can they believe if they've not heard? Some, they've got to hear it. That's why we're called to evangelize. That's why we're evangelicals, because we're supposed to preach the Word, because that is what keeps them out of hell. Now, it's up to them to respond, as it says here. Let them heed it. It's up to them. By the way, let them heed it. I can't make a person be saved. I wish I could. I wish I could give them the gospel, and I wish that my amazing illustrations, my amazing passion, my wise words, I wish that my presence, my godliness, I wish all of that could convince them but I can't. It says, let them heed the words of Moses. If they won't heed the words of Moses, if they won't heed the words of the gospel, of the prophet, they, it's not going to work. They let them do that. Here's what Jesus was saying. Let's cut to the bottom line here. Jesus is saying, if they're in hell, that's 100% on them. It's 100% on them. They have to heed the gospel. If they don't get saved, they, they, it is totally on them. They must heed it. They can't blame, oh, my dad was an inconsistent Christian. At church, he was one way, and then he'd come home, he'd be mean to us. You may be able to tell your friends that, but that doesn't wash with God. You might be able to say, I was abused, and as terrible as that is, it doesn't wash with God. You might be able to say, well, I just really, I was a scientific kind of person. I, I just didn't have enough facts. No. Did you know that at the time of Christ, there was not one Jewish person that didn't have the Word of God? Not one. Not even one that had not a copy of Scripture. They either were taught it they had it in their home, they had it in the temple, they had it with their friends, whatever the case is, they had the written Word. Jesus said, it's not a fact that they don't have it, much like America today. Folks, this country has the gospel. <laughs> they have the Word of God. It's just that they need to heed it. They need to know it and then receive it. I must tell you that the saddest road to heaven is to walk right by a church, to walk right by a person at work who has been telling you about Christ. There's something different about you. All I can tell you is what Jesus did. That's why I think everybody ought to have a 30-second answer, you know. 
Well, I'll tell you what. The Bible said, for, whoso, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but everlasting life. I believe that. That's what made my difference in my life. 30 seconds. But what have we done? We've given the word, and somehow the word gets into people's hearts, and then they must heed it. I still recall that precious young lady who's studying to be a doctor in the Philippines, and I asked her um, how she became a Christian, and she said, I saw on the back of a jeepney the words, you must be born again. And uh, a jeepney is like a little taxi, basically, like a, almost looks like an SUV, an old SUV in the Philippines. And uh, she said, that phrase just kept rolling around in my brain. You must be born again. And it had the reference, John 3, uh, John 3 7, is it? The, you must be born again. She said, I kept ringing her up. And then she said, I was there in medical school, and someone came along into the dormitories and gave every one of us a New Testament. And I opened it up, and on the front page it said, you must be born again. And here's how. She said, I read that, and she said, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Isn't that a beautiful little message? But what happened? It was the Word. It's the Word that gets people saved. That's why we put the Word out there. That's why we put it out through the media. That's why we put it out through the broadcast, the podcast. That's why we preach it. That's why we give out tracts. I mean, the fact is we are evangelicals. We give the good news. We give the Moses and the prophets. And by the way, everything that anybody ever needs to do to get saved is found in the Old Testament, just like the New Testament. It's there. I know that my Redeemer liveth, uh, Job said. The Bible says that Abraham uh, found, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. No, everything we need is found in the Old and the New Testament. Nobody can ever say, well, I just didn't have a chance. No, it's 100% on them. Nobody gets any more than the Bible. But we have the Bible, and thank God we have that option. I was reading this week's, and I close with this, some of the famous last words. In this case, uh, tragic last words of people who were atheists and agnostics. Edward Gibbon, you may know that name, especially if you studied history in college. Edward Gibbon was a great English historian extremely bright and well-studied. His book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, is perhaps the greatest historical study of all time. But he was also an atheist, and he came to a very bleak end at the end of his life. And those that were at his bedside said, here's were his words, the last words of Edward Gibbon, bright, intelligent, Smart, universal, uh, university scholar, all is dark and doubtful. Voltaire, the famous French atheist, if you've ever spent any time in a university or college, you will, of course, have read the words of Voltaire. Voltaire was a man who mocked God. He especially uh, was anti-Christian, uh, anti-religion. He did everything he could to debunk anything about God, Voltaire. 
his personal physician, after he died, wrote about his death. And here's what he said. The words of Voltaire, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me just six more months, physician. If not, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh, Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. He died as he gasped his last breath. John Lennon was founding member of the Beatles. He was an uh, amazing musician and still the, no group has ever come close to the amount of uh, sales of the Beatles. John Lennon also was very anti-God. He was a pacifist and uh, did everything he could to debunk Christianity. He uh, wrote uh, many songs, uh, All You Need Is Love, And in 1970, he wrote the song, Imagine. And his thought was that there's something better than what God says. There's got to be. There's something better than what the Bible says. And here's the words of that song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for just today. Sadly, I'm afraid to say that John Lennon now knows how wrong he was. No, there is a very real hell, and Scripture is very clear. That's why God has given me a passion throughout, as I've studied this for the last two weeks, just a passion to proclaim it. My responsibility, and I think that is actually one of of the reasons why Christ taught about hell, not only to prove His great love and His compassion, but also to give us a fire in our bones to remind us to rescue the perishing, to snatch them as we can. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask God.